When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This podcast is intended for entertainment and opinion. Nothing discussed is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are experiencing a mental health crisis, please call 988 or use the resources listed in the episode description. To see the sources and other resources mentioned in this episode, you can visit psychologicallymindedpod.com. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming topics, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. And finally, please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to get new episodes as they post. Enjoy this episode! Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. I'm your host, Grace Fowler, and today we are kicking off the month of October with some spooky, scary horror content. The first episode of this month is going to be focused on the Mike Flanagan series, Midnight Mass, which is the third limited series that he did, preceded by The Haunting of Hill House and The Haunting of Bly Manor. Now, if you have been a listener for a while, you'll know that I did an episode on both of those shows last year for October. And I featured my friend Becca, who came on the show to discuss the uh, each of the series. We had a great time. Those are available still on the platform, so I highly recommend you listen to those in addition to this one. Midnight Mass is a little different in that it's not necessarily the exact same format or following even the same world as the other two series, but because it's a limited series by Mike Flanagan that he created, I think that it kind of fits into the canon, if you will. Um, And I'm a big fan of Mike Flanagan's work. There will probably be some other Mike Flanagan shows or movies that I talk about uh, in these October series. So um, I just thought Midnight Mass would be a good one to do. So without further ado, let's jump into some of the main characters of the series and some of the symbolism used in the series to convey some pretty intense messages. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the show, I'm going to give a quick spoiler alert right now. Um, It is essentially a vampire show that follows a very small, very isolated fishing town situated on an island off the coast of the U.S. and a priest who returns to this island resurrected from his older form and bringing this creature in tow with him and his attempt to try to turn everyone on the island into this like immortal young version of themselves through the blood of this creature that he found in a cave in Israel. And each of the characters have essentially like a different way of coming to faith in general, whether it's Christianity, Islam, or atheism, or somewhere in the middle of all of those kind of major belief systems. And amidst all of these like very esoteric 
conversations about faith and belief is a very gory vampire story. And I think that is what is so unique about Mike Flanagan's work is he often pulls upon pretty classic horror tropes while also including these like big picture conversations or these more modern issues that need to be wrestled with. And so the contrast of these like very philosophical conversations with this bloody vampire story I think keeps you on your toes because you never quite know what's coming in the next scene. Is it going to be a 10 minute long soliloquy about the meaning of death and life? Or is it going to be a gross demon vampire jumping out of an abandoned house to eat someone? You never know what you're going to get. And that's what makes it fun to kind of see what's going to come next, keep you on your toes. That's kind of the basic premise of the show. Within the show, we have several main characters that are really represent, like I said, different ways that people come to faith or understanding of the world and their belief about the world. So first of all, we have to talk about the priest character. He represents like pretty classic Catholicism. He is a Catholic priest, um, but he also, I think, represents this very kind of narrow-minded, not narrow-minded, but narrow-focused perspective on faith. I would say that the priest character really represents kind of like a tunnel vision and how we can sometimes use our beliefs to bolster what we really want out of life and not necessarily what the faith system that we're going off of wants out of life. So the priest known as Father Paul or Father Pruitt, he was quite elderly when the series started and he went on a trip to Israel to kind of tour holy sites. And while he's in a cave, he gets lost in like a sandstorm in the desert. He's in a cave. He encounters this creature, which he believes to be an angel. And it attacks him. And he thinks that he, you know, is going to die. But when he wakes up, he is much younger. He's in his mid-30s. He's like rejuvenated, fully alive and healthy. And he realizes that this creature that he thinks is an angel is responsible for his newfound youth. So he decides to bring it home with him in a, a, a trunk <laughs> and use the creature's powers to turn everyone on the island that he has been taking care of in his parish into the like younger version of themselves. And toward the end of the show, we realize that his true motive was to specifically bring one person back to youth, and that was a woman who he had been in love with, had fathered a child with, but ultimately was unable to be with her due to the requirements of being a priest. I set that up now because I think that Father Paul really illustrates how it can be very easy to think that what we are doing is for our values or for our larger beliefs. But the reality is that we're doing it for ourselves or maybe a selfish reason. I would say that Father Paul is the epitome of like rationalizing behavior. Um, but let me talk a little bit more about him before I get <laughs> into all of that. So like I said, he was made young by the blood of the vampire or the demon. Interestingly enough, he, he comes back as like a mid-30s youngish man. And in one of the articles I was reading by Lammer Heindel... They were talking about how in like medieval Christian stories, men 
men, because let's be honest, they were about men, (laughs) uh, were represented as typically being in their mid-30s because that is the same age that Jesus Christ was in when he began his ministry. He was in his 30s and I believe died at the age of 33. So 33 is often called like the Jesus year because that would be the year that Jesus was crucified. Often in religious stories, particularly medieval religious stories, the heroes were in this like same age that Christ would have been as like an allegory to their mission being the same as Christ's mission. I think that that may have been a purposeful choice by Mike Flanagan. It may not have been. But either way, I think that it's very interesting because Father Paul definitely sees himself as having had a similar Christ-like experience of being resurrected. And I think views his mission as very similar to what like a savior's mission would be. And so not only in his age, but I think in his, what he believes his mission to be is aligned with his idea of what a messiah or a savior would do. So his real name is John Michael Pruitt, but he changes his name to Paul after the incident in the desert because he's also mirroring himself off of the story of Saul in the Bible who changed his name to Paul after having a religious experience on the road to Damascus. And again, with the age symbolized or mirroring the Messiah or a Messiah's age with the Paul story, you could see that Father Paul is really seeing himself as sort of like a great man of faith or like a saint, right? Maybe not a saint, but he's seeing himself as having this greater mission for the faith and maybe putting himself, identifying himself with these sort of like great men of history or great men of faith. And although he presents himself as quite humble or just wanting to help people, just wanting to like make everyone's suffering go away, the reality is is that he wants his partner to be young with him again. He wants to live the life he feel was robbed of him in the priesthood. And he wants to have the like power and essentially ego trip of saving a town of a hundred people from ailments and old age. There's a like glory to that that I think he is seeking. It's possible to read Father Paul's behavior as like insidious or as maybe misguided. I think there are multiple readings of him. You know that I prefer to take a more balanced approach. So I think it's interesting to talk about both ways that his actions could be perceived. But I think the core of it shows that even if you believe yourself to be on the same path that uh, like a great person of history may be on, the reality is, is that even these huge figures were people just like us and have complicated motivations and can get taken off track of their mission by simple things like wanting to have romantic love or you know, different like human needs being met. So I think that Paul, Father Paul, <laughs> really represents this, the, the, the humanity of people who maybe take on roles of leadership in religious communities, regardless of what that religion is. That the end of the day is that these people are human and the decisions that they make are based on human error and human needs, not on necessarily like divine intervention or divine plans. I also think that Father Paul is very focused on the idea that suffering should be avoided at all costs, 
which I think is a very clear picture of the failing of Western thought around suffering and pain. And maybe even like more modern Western thought, because I think if you were to look back at like medieval Western thought that pain and suffering were understood to be part of life because people were dying of like the bubonic plague and stuff. Like you just couldn't (laughs) avoid the reality that pain and suffering existed. But in more modern Western traditions, the idea that suffering should be avoided is always there. And it's behind a lot of unfortunate things that have happened in our cultures. I think very specifically like the Oxycontin or opioid crisis is that one factor that fuels that is this idea that a patient should never feel pain. And so if we can give them a medicine that completely eliminates their pain, it will eliminate their suffering. And the idea of like pain and suffering being tied together makes it a lot easier for someone to prescribe a painkiller with the assumption of that will eliminate this person's suffering. And in other like particularly Eastern contexts or religious backgrounds, the idea of suffering is that it is part of life. And by working so hard to avoid suffering, you often make suffering worse or more intense. There is an exercise that I like to do with with clients that comes from the area of like self-compassion mindfulness work. And it's called, Why Do I Cause Myself Unnecessary Suffering? And there's a great resource for it that I'll put in the the bio. It's from um, Kristen Neff, who is this like fantastic researcher in the field of self-compassion. She has a lot of awesome resources on her website and has written one of like the foremost books on teaching mindfulness self-compassion, which is like a big influence in my work. But this is like an, a writing exercise where you essentially pick like a situation that's causing you some difficulty. You don't want it to be like the most intense suffering that you've experienced, but maybe like a six or seven on the suffering scale. And you go through this prompt with the understanding of what are the ways in which I am holding on to maybe expectations or holding on to anger at someone or frustration at someone or something for not making my way easier. And by fixating on those barriers that may not ever get resolved, we increase the amount of suffering we're having around an issue. I I just bring that up because I think this is just such a great real world application of what we're seeing in the show is that Father Paul's attempts to eliminate all suffering on the island ultimately ends up with most everyone on the island dying. He creates unnecessary suffering, not just that they all die, but that it's a brutal death. And leading up to that death, there are incidences of like trauma and violence perpetrated against the community that all serve to increase the amount of suffering that the community experiences when his ultimate goal was to reduce or uh, like uh, abolish all suffering. And so it is often our work to eliminate suffering that makes the suffering more intense or adds suffering to a situation that maybe wouldn't have caused us to suffer as much. And it, it's tricky. It's a hard idea to like wrap your mind around, especially if you're not used to this type of like philosophy or way of thinking. But if you can like slow down and think about it, you can see how the reality of life is that there are going to be things that hurt us. And if we're unable to kind of roll with the punches, right, and try to fight back at every step, it could increase the, the pain felt by that punch, right, because you're rigid against it. And it's not a, a way to like erase all responsibility or opportunities for change and growth, but it is a different way of thinking about situations that are causing you pain and hopefully 
allowing some space for acceptance so that that pain is not magnified by the actions you're taking. And Father Paul was not able to do that. He he really amplified that pain. And alongside that mission of eliminating the suffering of everyone on his island, we also, like I mentioned before, learned that he's really trying to get back to the age he was at when he fell in love with Mildred and fathered a child with her, who is Sarah, the island doctor. This doesn't come as a revelation to us until I think like the second or last episode, although there are clues throughout that like he's obviously really into this Mildred person and he's like always watching Sarah and she thinks it's because she's gay and he's a priest and he hates her. But the reality is is that because she is his daughter and he's always kept an eye on her, even though she could never know that he was her father because then he, you know, would not be able to be a priest anymore. And so we we see that a lot of what Father Paul has been doing, which his main method of getting the people to ingest the blood of the vampire, is he puts it into the communion wine. And all season, throughout the whole show, he's so dedicated to bringing Mildred communion, and he'll show up at all hours of the night to bring her the sacrament. And it's because the blood of the vampire is in the wine that he's supposed to be bringing her. And so she's slowly turning into a younger version of herself. And so he has a conversation with Mildred once she has kind of de-aged, where we as the audience finally get to realize that they had a fling, had been in love, and she had gotten pregnant, and he made the decision to not leave the church to be with her. That he has been regretting this decision for essentially his entire life, or the majority of his life. And he wanted to make them both young and immortal again so that they could try again. They could get another chance to kind of redo what they didn't do the first time around. And obviously it backfires horribly because everyone on the island ends up dying, except for like two children. Although it's a rather extreme example of it, I think that this just serves to show us that we don't get to go back and relive our lives. That it's it's kind of like we have one chance to do it. And if we don't do it the first time around, there's no guarantee that you'll get a second chance at it. And not to say that, like, everyone listening needs to, like, drop everything that you're doing and, like, go check everything off of your bucket list. But just of knowing that, like, the choices that you make at this point are the choices that will follow through with you for the rest of your life. And so it can feel like there's a lot of weight on the decisions that we're making now. And we kind of, I think, one thing that Father Paul didn't do was weigh how he would feel about his decision 50 years down the line. Maybe in his 30s, it felt like the right decision, but we don't know what that decision will feel like 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years later. I don't think there is any like good answer for this of like, do you always choose family over work? Do you always choose like relationships over money? I don't know. I think that a lot of times each decision that is made is different in its context, but the reality is, is that once a decision is made, that's the decision. And if we are living our lives like feeling bitter or regretting the decisions that we've made in the past, then it's almost like the fruits of our lives will start to spoil. Father Paul could have had a great legacy of being a, you know, chill priest that didn't harm the community. And there were people that really cared about him. And some people will be forever impacted by him. And he didn't have a family. But in his ability or in his desire to 
kind of retroactively change that decision, he, his reputation is that he ruined the lives of a hundred people. He ruined this island community that had been self-sustaining for, you know, hundreds of years. And so he it really, really overcorrected in his attempt to kind of get back to that point where he felt the, the path had diverged. And although many of us won't unleash a vampire upon our communities, <laughs> I think a lot of us do kind of get stuck in this. If I could just go back to this one point, this was the sliding doors moment that would have changed my life forever. And we can expend all the energy we want on imagining that things would be different if we had made a different choice. But that's not going to make a change to our continued future path. So we might as well take that energy and apply it to the present day or, you know, looking forward a little bit. And I know that that's not easy to do. Otherwise, we would all do it all the time. Um, But sometimes I think we just need little reminders that when we stay living in the past, we are missing out on what's happening in our lives in the present moment. And Father Paul's focus on reclaiming the family he thought was owed to him really ended up wrecking a lot of other families. So like I mentioned before, he's essentially giving everyone in the community these tainted communion cups by putting the vampire blood into the wine that they drink at communion. Now, the crux of the like vampire mechanism in this show is that you can drink the blood of the vampire and get some of the effects. Like you can heal, you can like start to, I guess, unage. But the full effects, like the immortality, doesn't take place until you actually physically die. So this means that Father Paul needs to be prepared to somehow kill everyone in his congregation so that they can resurrect. The method that he comes up with, well, that he comes up with in collaboration with Bev, who's a whole whole other character we'll talk about in a minute, is to have them drink poison like I think it's like rat poison or something like some sort of something that's not meant to be consumed by humans and they have like this horrible violent death where they're like vomiting blood and having seizures and convulsing and and like collapsing on top of each other and so he has to essentially kill everyone in the congregation and then when they wake up and are resurrected they now have the qualities of a vampire which is that they are hungry for blood so they, the people who turned first, like start to feast on the other people. And then they kind of all wake up and are like, we're vampires now. And there's a few people on the island who don't go to church. So then they like are unleashed on the town to like feed and try to either like turn other people or, or like kill the rest of the people who haven't been going to church. So it, it then becomes like a believer versus non-believer issue. But the point is, is that, you know, Father Paul is willing to go so far to get these people to this like immortality that he's discovered that he's willing to have them die a very violent painful death to go through the trauma of like eating each other which like come on that's got to be pretty traumatic to feel like out of control of your own behavior to the point where you like attack your neighbor and has then forever changed their lives because now they can't go out into the sun and that's part of why the show is called midnight mass is that uh the like final religious service is held in the middle of the night because he wants to reveal the angel or the demon or the vampire or whatever, and you can't have it out in the daytime because it follows traditional vampire rules of <laughs> no sunshine. And so the, the religious services start to be held later and later in the day, even though typically these types of services would be held in the morning. 
So all that to say is that Father Paul has made the decision that the reward of like immortality is so worth it that he's willing to like essentially subtly slip stuff into communion for weeks, violently kill the people in his parish, and then allow them to eat the non-believer people in their community. And he believes that all of those things are worth the gift that they're going to get being resurrected. And I think that this really highlights this aspect of sometimes intention doesn't matter. That you may intend something very lovely, like giving someone everlasting life, if that's what they want. But the reality is, is that all the actions taken up to that point to get to that like intended ending is deeply painful. They're all deeply painful and cause harm to communities, individuals, and families. And Father Paul just like cannot comprehend that his actions could be harmful. And we see that a lot in our lives, right? Someone you are close to may have the intention of doing something that they think will will benefit you, but ultimately it harms you. And I think that this issue is kind of like on a, a seesaw or a scale where there are like kind of low stakes thing where intention is does kind of outweigh the harm, right? Like maybe you're talking with a friend and they make a comment about the outfit that you're wearing that they don't like it or something along the lines of that. And it hurts your feelings. And then they explain like my intention was to, you know, help you to change your outfit for this event because I want you to like be able to network or, you know, whatever. I know that's like a weird example, but I think in those situations, like it's, it's kind of low stakes. Like not that your feelings being hurt isn't valid or important, but the, the like amount of harm caused there is not as great as like other types of harm. And if it was just a one-off comment and it's not that this friend is like constantly sniping at your appearance, if they're doing that, then I'm just going to say the teeter-totter, the seesaw has switched (laughs) over to the other side. And there are, you know, and the other side of that is that there are some actions that are so reprehensible that doesn't matter the intention behind them that, you know, we hear this a lot in like situations where transphobia is at play, right? Where People will be like, well, we should pass these bathroom bills because my intention is to protect children. Well, you're not. You're harming children because you're outlawing the ability for them to go to the bathroom in a place that is safe and identifies with their gender. You're now turning it into this like accusation that every trans person is a pedophile. And guess what? There are a lot of kids that identify as trans and you're telling them that they're pedophiles. So that's nice. That's really nice of you. And the intention there may be pure of heart to the person saying it. They may truly believe that they're protecting children, but the harm is to a large amount of people and outweighs the intention of vaguely protecting children because the harm then does harm children. (laughs) And so I think that it, it can be easy to be like, intent never matters. It's always about the outcome of the action. But there are often very low stakes or more individualized situations where the intent I think can outweigh the harm or at least can mitigate the harm in some ways in that we don't have to end all interpersonal relationships just because there have been some small mismatches between intent and outcome. As we start to add or build out and larger communities are affected by the harm then the intent stops (laughs) outweighing the harm and maybe even doubles down on adding to the harm. And Father Paul would be an example of that in that 
his intent may have been the the purest of all. Like he may have truly only wanted to soothe the pains of his congregation, have them live forever. Um, but we know that one, he had multiple intents, and that two, the the harm of that mission really um, outweighed any of the benefits. And I, there are probably quite a few people in that crowd who didn't want to live forever, especially if that meant they had to live as a vampire. Now, Paul, Father Paul, does get to be redeemed toward the end, and he is able to see that he made the wrong choice and that he was guided by his own desires and not necessarily a desire for the greater good. And so he makes the choice to essentially die in the sun as the sun rises with the rest of the town at the end of the series. And I personally really liked that Father Paul got to have his redemption moment because it could have been very easy to make him the full villain of the show, to make him maybe double down on his belief that this was the right thing to do or to make him have this kind of experience where maybe he's so desperate to live that he, uh, you know, abandons Mildred and Sarah to, to like, get to the mainland to, to continue living forever as this, like, immortal being. But he, ultimately, I think his final decision more reflects the values that he's been talking about for the whole season uh, the whole series and gives him an opportunity to kind of walk the walk alongside talking the talk and shows that he's able to accept the decisions that he made in his life. Even though his last run of decisions was quite bad, he's able to accept that with his decision to not have this like family with Mildred and Sarah. And I think that regardless of like what your beliefs are about like the afterlife, if there is one or not, or what it's like to die. I think that the hope would be that we could all be at a place where we come to uh, like a sense of acceptance of the life that we did live. And that, of course, there are going to be like mistakes that we've made and maybe choices that we might not have made with the wisdom of living through the consequences of those decisions. But we want to be at a place where we can kind of say like, yeah, that was my life. That was my life. I lived it, and these were the things that I went through, the people that I met, and we don't have to be ecstatic about it, but we can say, like, I I accept that that was the life that I lived. And I think that is kind of how Father Paul is able to die, because if, although he looks like he's only 30, he's really, like, 80 years old, and he's lived a very long life and made lots of decisions and is able to kind of come to, like, the, the idea of, like, it's time it's time to stop making decisions and, you know, kind of go out with, with grace. Not me, but with the idea of, like, going out with grace and acceptance. So that's Father Paul. He's, you know, the big focus, obviously, of the show. There are a few other characters that I want to talk about. The first is Riley Flynn. He's another one of the main characters. He's the son of a family that has lived on the island for many years. His father is a fisherman, and that's kind of like how people on the island support themselves. And Riley is also kind of like the representation of Mike Flanagan's story. He, in several interviews, has said that he identifies with Riley. Riley is like his, very similar to his story. And Riley suffers from uh, like alcohol use problems, at the beginning of the show, we see that he's gotten into a car accident while driving under the influence of alcohol, and he ends up killing 
the driver of the other car, who was like a young woman who looks to be, if not in her 20s, like 18 or 19, like a, a young, a young woman. And he goes to jail for this incident and he's in in prison for a few years before he returns to the island to kind of put his life back together and go through the terms of his probation or his parole, which include attending AA meetings. And Riley, Riley, sweet Riley, (laughs) he really struggles with the religious beliefs of his family. He's an atheist. He really doesn't believe in any, like, form of organized religion. He really struggles with AA because it does have a pretty religious, like, bent to it. Um, And he is struggling to relate to his parents because they are still, especially his mother, they are still, like, very involved in, in the Catholic Church, and he just doesn't get it. And I can totally understand Riley's perspective of going through this very traumatic event that he did have essentially a hand in like he made the decision to drink he made the decision to drive under the influence and it resulted in taking someone's life and that's gonna really shock your worldview kind of shock your belief system and I am pretty sure it's implied in the show that Riley had long ago stepped away from his religious belief or his parents religious beliefs And I think that he's at a place where he knows he doesn't believe in what his family believed in or what he may have believed in as a child, but he doesn't quite know what to believe or how to orient his world moving forward. And he carries like a bitterness that's really directed at himself. And he's trying to make sense of, you know, how how could I do this? How could I, I think of myself as a good person. How could I have engaged in this, this horrible behavior that led to someone dying? And I appreciate Riley's perspective in this, in that he's so much more than just like a kid who moved back home and is, you know, struggling with matching up his like big city life with his family's like rural life. Like it, it's more than that because he's also coming back with this like guilt, the shame. He knows that what he did was wrong, but he doesn't quite know what to do next. And he, but he does know that he has to get through the terms of this parole and he's got to like suffer through AA essentially. And I'm not going to go like too much into the problems with AA in this episode because I just like don't have time for it. Um, But I, I do want to do this at one point on the show is kind of get into the history of AA. I've been reading this book called The Sober Truth, which is quite interesting and kind of talks about the history of AA and the like efficacy of it or lack of efficacy of it. So I might do that for a future episode, but I just want to, you know, put a pin in it here that AA is not the only treatment for alcohol use issues, nor is it the best treatment that we have. And Riley's character, I think, is an interesting person to look at at some of those issues with AA, particularly the way in which faith plays a role in AA, even though you're often told it doesn't play a role. And Riley is really struggling with that as he is enmeshed in this community again that, that's that's highly religious. So yeah, I think Riley overall reflects more of someone wrestling with walking away from a belief system and 
trying to figure out what their new belief system is and is there anything from that past that they want to keep with them as they move forward. And although it's not necessarily talked about in the show, I think that Riley could be an example of what we might call deconstructing for people who have left like a Christian or a Christianity-based faith where you're kind of breaking down all these things you were raised with and figuring out, like, who am I now? What do I think about the world now? Riley does seem to be more toward the end of that, where he's pretty confident that, like, he doesn't believe in a higher power, but he also doesn't quite know what he believes in about the afterlife. He's experienced, essentially, like, hallucinations of the woman that he killed, which... I think he interprets as like, then there must not be an afterlife or it must not be pleasant because she keeps showing up to me. Um, And then he ultimately does sacrifice himself at the end, uh, well, at the end of his story, uh, because Father Paul turns him, kind of tricks him into drinking the blood of the vampire and Riley purposefully sits out in the sun in a boat where he he can't escape the sun because he doesn't want to live with the reality that he would have to kill other people to sustain himself. So I think he, like, toward the end has developed his his worldview, but is still in that position of, like, uh, he, like, feeling like maybe he has to hate everything he grew up with or distance himself from everything he grew up with, even though there's some benefit or beauty in the beliefs that his family and his community have. So the next character I want to talk about is Erin Green. She, like Riley, was raised on the island also left the island in adulthood, but she moved back to the island by choice. She, after she left the island, had kind of like a wild ride, was using a lot of substances, got into a relationship, I believe married a man who was pretty abusive, and and found out that she was pregnant by him and realized she didn't want to live this life anymore and she didn't want her child to have this life either. And moved back to the island after her mother died to kind of uh, reestablish herself in the community and build a different life for her and her unborn child. And we also learn later on in the show that she was abused by her mother quite aggressively and her mother had an alcohol use issue, but nobody on the community knew. And her mother was also like a teacher at the school that all the kids went to. So he became or Aaron became very good at hiding the abuse, hiding what was going on with her. And we kind of see her now as an adult, not wanting to do that anymore, not wanting to hide, wanting to own the mistakes that she's made and try to establish this different life for her and her unborn child. She's also quite religious. Um, She attends the services in the community. But Erin, I would say, is probably a more representative of what we might imagine of a millennial or younger religious person where she has actually quite a mix of beliefs. And although she attends Catholic services on the island, she also believes in this sort of, I guess you would call it like a humanistic idea that like we are all connected. It's like a very um, spiritual belief, not necessarily an organized religious belief. And she gives one of these, like, pretty intense monologues as she dies at the end about, like, how she's returning to the universe and she's essentially remembering her past lives. So this kind of, like, idea of reincarnation. So she holds a lot of different beliefs that may not 
traditionally mesh, but she's kind of built this worldview for herself that works and is like a comfort to her. And she and Riley really go back and forth on this because he doesn't understand how she can still like attend church and believe some of these things. Um, But she has changed her worldview. She's changed her sort of belief system. And Riley doesn't quite understand how she can synthesize her past and present beliefs. So I would probably rate Aaron as like the healthiest person on the island, at least in terms of like beliefs and how that impacts the way she treats other people. She, you know, has gone through a lot of trauma and is really trying to heal and do the best for herself and her child. And unfortunately, one of the plot points is that because she's going to the church, she's consuming the vampire blood. And one of the effects of the vampire blood is that because it's de-aging her body, it makes her pregnancy essentially terminate. And not just terminate, but that there's like absolutely zero evidence that she's even pregnant. And she actually experiences some gaslighting because the doctor on the island is like, you aren't pregnant. Like there's no baby in your womb. You must have had a miscarriage. And she's like, no, I didn't. And there's like absolutely no way. Um, and it's not until like toward the end when the vampires revealed that she realizes what happened. But even through like this really horrible incident of losing this baby on top of all of the healing that she's trying to do, Aaron stays very positive and very well balanced to the people that she is in relationship with. And I, I really appreciate that about her character because I think often the way that trauma is portrayed in like TV shows and movies is that a person who goes through trauma either is like so resilient that it never even touches them or they're like immediately knocked down, lose all like hope and become some sort of like stereotype of like a, a you know learned hopelessness character. But I think Erin is really in this middle of that she clearly reacted to the trauma she experienced of being abused as a child by seeking this kind of extravagant or risky lifestyle on the mainland and then has like gone to therapy and removed herself from situations that were dangerous and is doing this work to kind of process and heal herself. And I don't think we see that often. It's obviously not a perfect portrayal, but I think that Aaron Green's character is a lot closer to what's actually possible for real life people who go through trauma than most examples we see of trauma in the media. And I think that's a hopeful message and a way to show people who may be watching or listening to this episode that going through something like a trauma doesn't mean that your life is functionally over. It may feel like that in the moment. It may be the worst thing that you've ever gone through. But the good part or the healthy part of our resiliency is not just that we can like white knuckle our way through the rest of our lives. It's that our brains and bodies can heal. And we may not ever go back to the way we were before, but we will be able to heal and move on in some other way that, that makes us stronger. And this idea is often called post-traumatic growth, which is that off after a trauma, it's not all doom and gloom. It's not all PTSD, that there are opportunities for growth, for change in a positive direction, and people do become stronger. Not in a way of like, you have to be beaten down to be stronger, but in a way of that demonstrates how resilient that human beings are. And I, I 
think that's quite beautiful. And it really stays strong in Aaron's character throughout the show. She doesn't really waver in her mission. And one of her last actions is to um, cut the wings of the vampire so that it can't fly to the mainland to keep infecting people. She knows that she's going to die. It's like attacking her, but she knows that she can use kind of her last energy to do something in the world to help other people, even though the world had been so unkind to her for much of her life. So yeah, I'm an Aaron stan if that's if that's not coming through. Um she's also played by the the actress who plays Aaron is married to Mike Flanagan and they she's in like all of the movies that he's made, or a lot of them, and I think she's like a fantastic actress. Anyway, next character that I want to talk about is Bev Keen. Bev is the worst. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna say it up top. Bev is the absolute worst. She's like this busybody up in everybody's business. She's involved in the church. She has some sort of like volunteer position. I don't, I'm not good with Catholicism, so I don't quite know what it would be called. But she's like uh, essentially like the priest helper. And then she runs the school on the camp, on the island where Aaron teaches. And she's like such a little suck up too. Like she wants to be the priest's favorite person because she seems to think that she'll get a golden ticket into heaven if she is the most loved by the priest. And her only way of figuring out how to get him to love her is to like fully buy into his mission. And even when Father Paul reveals like that people are gonna have to drink poison and that this is like essentially a vampire blood curse, Bev is like all in. She's, like, the most fanatic about believing him. She's convincing other people that it's good. It's from God. Even though there are other people who see the quote-unquote angel and are like, that thing is a demon. Like, there's absolutely no way that's an angel. Bev is like, no, 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 no. Gaslight, girl boss, gatekeep. Okay, she's she's all in. And if we were looking at each character as how they represent, like, how someone would come to faith, I think that Bev represents a kind of person who may present themselves as a true believer or as the most faithful believer. And the reality is, is that they have some of the shallowest beliefs. If Bev truly believed in Catholicism or in God or Christianity or, you know, whatever you want to categorize it as, if she really believed in those things, she would probably not act the way she that she does. She's incredibly hostile to the people in her community. She definitely killed someone's dog, not because of vampire stuff. She just killed this guy's dog because she doesn't like him and thinks he's like a gross sinner. She's constantly talking down to people, condescending to them, judgmental of different lifestyles that differ from her. She really does not embody the beliefs that she appears she does, but she holds herself to be superior because she's performing the like religious beliefs, quote unquote, better than the people around her. And I think this is what makes Bev's death in the show so satisfying is that while the rest of the community kind of comes together to knowing that they're going to die when the sun comes up because all of the structures have been burnt down, they come together singing a song and choosing to kind of like die as a community. And Bev is off on her own, frantically like trying to dig a hole so that she won't die. And you realize that although she had these beliefs or seemed like she had these beliefs and flaunted this idea of like 
heaven and the afterlife against other people that she was going to get in and they wouldn't because she was the best at her religion. We realize that underneath of that all, she didn't know what was going to happen when she died. And she's terrified of death coming for her. And that explains her actions. And because she's alienated so many people that she knows she can't be part of that final like community death where they're, they've come together as like a town. And I think that Bev's character is very salient in at least the like American political climate where we have so many politicians that weaponize religious beliefs against marginalized groups and will claim that because the Bible says something, then, you know, gay people and women and trans people can't have rights. And then the reality is, is that they live their lives openly in like opposition to these religious beliefs that they weaponize against other people. It's hypocritical. And the message of that hypocrisy is that the person spreading this hateful language or these like beliefs that clearly aren't in line with the religious texts they're pulling upon is that other people who aren't like you are not worthy of redemption or race or rights or basic humanity. And of course, no one's going to want to learn more about your religious beliefs if this is like what the public facing message is of the beliefs. And so, you know, Bev might be a particularly activating character in this show because I think she really does represent this I'm going to say it like conservative religious political position that is often taken at least in American political spaces that is just so alienating and dehumanizing to people. And then to have those same figures turn around and say like, well, Christians are persecuted or, you know, no one respects my religion. Well, why would we respect your religion if you're going to treat other people that way? It doesn't seem to be a good foundation of a religious belief if that's how you baseline treat people. And Bev in this tiny microcosm of this island community really shows how like if you can you can dig you can double down on your beliefs all you want, but it's not going to bring people closer to believing what you believe. There are people on this tiny island that never go to church and part of it is because of Bev. And they say that. They communicate that that if Bev was just like a little bit of a nicer person, they might consider checking it out. One of the interesting things about Bev's character, too, is we really don't learn much about her past. We do with a lot of the other characters. We kind of learn about how they got to this point. And Bev, we don't get that. It's just kind of like this idea that Bev's probably always been this way. And I think it's interesting because I I would say that Bev is probably the villain of the show, although obviously the vampire that kills everyone is like the villain. It's also like a creature. But Bev would be, like, I think the human villain of the show. And I think it's an interesting choice of the, like, creators and filmmaker to say, you don't need a backstory to understand this woman's behavior. There's no reason to justify that maybe she was bullied or abused or, you know, had a difficult childhood. That that wouldn't, that's not important to the story to flesh out Bev's background. That regardless of how Bev got to this point, she's had so many chances that she she hasn't redeemed herself. Whereas even Riley, who killed someone, but has 
been able to get to a point where he can take accountability for his actions, get some redemption, even though he's still really struggling with himself. And and Bev never does that or seems to be capable of that. So I think it's actually narratively fine that we don't know her background because it wouldn't matter. She isn't using any lessons from the past or isn't trying to heal from her past like Aaron is. She's pretty set on the path that she has in front of her. So I would say that Bev is a cautionary tale of what can happen to someone who doubles down on beliefs that they are holding for maybe more selfish reasons or is willing to bend and twist those beliefs to ultimately only serve her own well-being, even though those beliefs are founded in supposedly like caring for others and a, la- a larger community. And the last character that I want to talk about is Sheriff Hassan El-Shabazz. He is the sheriff, obviously, <laughs> of the community, and he is Muslim. He is one of the islanders who like does not participate in the religious uh, or in the Catholic church. He's also pretty devout in his beliefs and is raising his son to follow in the traditions of his faith. Often see him in the show like praying, abstaining from certain foods, and just really trying to communicate to his son about like his religious beliefs and what he wants his son to grow up in. And of course, Bev hates him because he's not Catholic. And some of the community is like wary of him and clearly trying to convert him. And he has been like trying to fit in, but hasn't been integrating with the community well, particularly when the show like starts up. We we see that he's still not like integrated into this community out, outside of the like religious community. So he's just he's having a tough time. Um, and I think that honestly, Sheriff. Hassan represents more of this idea of like unnecessary suffering, which, you know, Father Paul has an element of that as well, right? Because he, like I talked about earlier in the episode, he's like trying so hard to avoid suffering that he causes more. And I think the sheriff represents unnecessary suffering in like a little bit of a different way where it's not that he's amplifying the suffering of the people around him. It's that I think he's amplifying his own suffering by remaining so isolated and festering this bitterness at this community. Because it's clear from the dialogue and the scenes that he has that he resents this island community for not accepting him and his religious beliefs even as his son is fitting in with the community and really desperately trying to be like the other kids at school. And this puts them at odds because his dad doesn't want him to like acculturate essentially. And the son is like, I don't understand why we can't have a little give and take here. Why we can't, you know, meet them essentially halfway. And the sheriff is also a grieving man. He had lost his wife, I believe to cancer. He's clearly, like, not doing well, and so I think that his insistence on, like, an almost rigid adherence to his religious beliefs is creating this unnecessary suffering by putting him at odds and keeping him away from the community when he could be 
maybe getting a little extra support. Now, I'm not saying like he and Bev need to be BFFs because <laughs> I don't think Bev could ever get there. Um, but I'm, I think that there are some situations in the show where the sheriff could benefit from softening a little bit and letting people in a little bit more um, just because he needed extra support. Like he's he was really going through it. And then on top of like grieving his wife, trying to raise his son, trying to hold on to his identity. He's also trying to like solve all these murders that are popping up because the vampire is like hunting people on the island. And like you don't show up to this little island community to be the sheriff expecting to solve murders or to like have to even deal like this much violence. So he, he, I will say he's really going through it. And, and I don't think that he would need to give up his religious beliefs or compromise them in any way. But I think the way that he carries himself, the, the like defensiveness that he has is where I would maybe suggest a little softening, um, a little like flexibility of bending and moving with the community I also think the community should work on being more open to him and his beliefs and not letting Bev run around like a maniac, treating him poorly because he doesn't believe the same thing that she believes. And of like allowing space for maybe learning about his faith, learning about his family and like how he and his son carry out traditions, just like the, you know, fishing community has their traditions. So there's obviously space on both sides of this. But I think that the sheriff is this portrait of how when we try to suffer in silence, we are actually making the suffering louder. We are amplifying our own suffering by trying to do it alone, trying to white knuckle our way through it. And I know that there are times when we have to kind of white knuckle it. Like you you kind of just have to grit your teeth and, and get through a situation until you have room to breathe. And in the middle of a demon vampire attack is not... <laughs> It's not the time to, like, you know, do some self-actualization. But before this event, the events of the show happened, like, the sheriff could have had some opportunities to, you know, maybe get to know the community in a different way. And we see there are some relationships that have potential. Like, he and Sarah seem to have gotten along. He and Riley probably could have gotten along well um, if he didn't just assume that Riley was, like, a horrible person. Uh, there are just there are areas that that I think could have been improved for the sheriff, and I admire like the strength of the character to hold on to his own beliefs and his own traditions in the face of you know it essentially is xenophobia mostly coming from Bev, but also the kind of what we would call like benevolent racism where people are meaning well but treating him differently and trying to be so overly nice in their conversion efforts that they are treating him differently and again it goes back to like what I was talking about with Father Paul of like intent does start to matter as we up the stakes and although I think there are several characters in the community that intend well by trying to convert the sheriff they are doing more harm because they're continuing to contribute to this like isolation he's experiencing and like ostracizing him from their community he can be part of their community and not go to their church i mean riley gets to come back and be part of the community there are other people on this island that don't go to the church it's just that there's so much wrapped up in like islam and people who practice it that clearly the the people are reacting to the sheriff based on like stereotypes and not like his actual 
being and presentation in their community. So again, each character does seem to represent like this this different way of approaching faith. They also differ on like their devoutness. I would say the sheriff is a fairly devout character. Um, he doesn't seem to be like wrestling with his faith. Mostly, what he's wrestling with is his son's like religious education or his son's like rebellion against their religious beliefs. And I think that having the sheriff be the one who's going through this this issue of like a young child not um believing the same thing as a parent really brings a humanity to it and shows us that regardless of what like our base religion is like we might all be going through something similar of like younger generations revolting against the beliefs of their parents it it's universal it happens everywhere even regardless of what the the faith is so i i think it was good to have that character that sheriff's character be dealing with that so yeah, I think that's most of what I have to say about this episode. I did also want to mention that um, the like vampire, angel, demon, whatever, him being perceived as an angel is like a great, great example of confirmation bias um, because it's clearly a demon or like a scary character, right? Like it's bald. Its wings are naked and like bat wings. It has like horrible teeth, a very scary face, and it looks like a monster. But you know, Father Paul keeps saying it's an angel. Other people kind of buy in and say he's an angel too. And Father Paul like rationalizes calling this creature an angel because he's like, well, in the Bible, it says that angels are terrifying. And I do want to give a quick shout out to my one of my favorite genres. Uh, genres of art which is biblically accurate angels <laughs> and if you look like on tumblr twitter or whatever on the internet you'll see people who draw angels based on like descriptions in like the old testament and they're terrifying it's like they're all eyes and feathers and some of them are just like circles and creatures and <laughs> like clearly not a like being in a white gown with like a fuzzy halo like we might imagine in our like cultural idea of an angel and so, sure, there is probably an element of, like, not all angels looked like buff dudes in white gowns. Some of them may have looked like creatures. But I will say I haven't seen any art that looks like a demon and is called an angel. Um, and so that's why I think it illustrates confirmation bias is that Father Paul is digging through the Bible looking for language that confirms what he wants to believe about this creature. He wants to believe it's an angel because if it's not an angel, then he can't accept its like miracle or its its resurrection. If it's not from his God, then he shouldn't be able to accept it. It should be, you know, counter to his beliefs. But because he so desperately wants to be young again, to relive this family he never got to have, he's searching for every piece of evidence he can find that this is an angel this is a gift from god it is a good thing even though we have thousands of years of art and literature that would call this thing a monster like it looks like a monster i don't know what else to say it's clearly not an angel but he's hanging on to this one tiny part of the bible that says angels are scary so that he can justify his whole plan and his whole like mission with this creature and that's confirmation bias in a nutshell, right? Like finding the tiniest piece of evidence to like keep 
building up your belief, even though there's like a mountain of evidence to the contrary in front of you. We're ignoring the mountain and we're looking at this little nut on the ground. So I think that's a good note to end on. Um, You know, a, a throwback to our favorite cognitive bias, confirmation bias. I hope that you enjoyed this episode and can see how Midnight Mass really represents all the different ways that people can come to faith and come to building a worldview. And that regardless of what the beliefs are, that characters like Riley and Aaron, who are trying to do the work to understand and come to the best version of themselves, they can serve as role models. And characters like Bev can serve as the opposite of a role model of like, it doesn't matter what the belief system is, but you just can't live your life in a way like Bev does, where you alienate people and target people for having a different idea of how the world works than you. It's just not going to lead to a very supportive life or a very fulfilling life. And Bev is just the perfect example of that, that at the end it all fell apart and she really had nothing to stand on. So with that, I just want to say thank you for listening all the way through. I hope you enjoyed this first episode of Spooky Content. And I'll see you in the next episode for more creepy horror stuff. (laughs) Bye-bye.